Hello, and welcome to another episode of Playing in the Sandbox, Conversations in Pedagogy. My name is Katherine Troyer, and I am delighted, as always, to be joined by Lauren Malone. Hey, everyone. going to be talking about that very important document, the syllabus. Uh, this is something that I think we spend a lot of time focusing on and maybe even obsessing about. And it's something that seems to have this like inverse relationship that the more faculty seem to stress out about it, the, the less they perceive students engaging with it. So Lauren and I thought that we would talk through some various elements of, of the syllabus that can transform that document so that it really becomes a meaningful part of the course as opposed to that thing that you speed read through on the first day and then, you know, sort of never glance at again. So the first thing we thought we would do, because both Lauren and I are humanists, so this is, this is how we think, is to think through the syllabus through the lens of metaphor. Lauren, would you explain what it means to, to think about the syllabus in terms of a metaphor and why it can be helpful? Sure. So I think that thinking about a syllabus as a metaphor can be helpful in two ways. It can be helpful for you in sort of really deciding what you want students to get out of this. And then following directly off of that, it can be helpful for you in terms of being able to articulate what the heck to do with the syllabus to your students. And as a brief reminder, what exactly is a metaphor? A metaphor is a figure of speech in which a word or phrase is applied to something that it is not actually attached to in any way. So the metaphor that is perhaps most frequently used when talking about the syllabus is the contract. What does it mean to think about the syllabus as a contract? So I think when, when instructors use it, use that particular term, what they mean is if you are a student in my class and you read through the syllabus, you know the standards that you will be held to. And if you fail to abide by those standards, then your grade is going to suffer or the grade is going to be up in the air or whatever the case may be. So it's kind of like setting down, setting down a list of rules or a list of considerations. And I think where the contract metaphor sometimes becomes a, a problem or an issue is that for some people, they're not thinking of good contract. They're thinking of the fine print, you've sold me your first, firstborn child and you didn't know it type of contract, right? Where they're like, but it was in the seven pages of two point font that I read through really quickly. How did you not know that this was these additional things? I'll admit that for a long time, I thought of my syllabus as a contract because there are some ways in which it's helpful. I tend to not be a very aggressive person and I, and I tend to, to feel better when I have, some, have had some time to think about how I want to articulate something in writing. So it is nice to be able to think of it in terms of a contract and be like, well, I took the time to make the wording accommodate for everything I wanted it to accommodate for. So if you think about your syllabus in terms of a metaphor, you are thinking about it very legalistically, but that, that may mean that you're also thinking about it very precisely. The downside, of course, of the metaphor of a contract is that it's not legal, right? The contract is not a legal binding document. 
no matter how much you may desire it to be. Are there any other problems with the contract metaphor? I think that sometimes we, and I was definitely like this when, when I kind of thought of it as a contract. I think sometimes we think that we're being really clear in an expectation or a guideline, um, but that's because we've taught a class so many times or are so familiar with the assignment structure or whatever it is that we are already kind of filling in the gaps, whereas that's not being articulated to the students. And so I think that, like you said, the contract idea can be very helpful um, to some instructors, but you have to make sure that you are really thinking about how you are articulating the the standards that the students are going to be held to. I think that's really, really important because it reminds me of like the first time that I signed a contract to to rent an apartment or to rent a house. There were things on there the very first time that I didn't know to look out for or that I didn't know I needed to think about or that maybe were not traditional elements. And so if you're going to have that be your metaphor in place, then you really want to make sure that you're approaching it with the understanding that your students may be a first-time contract signer, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so that's really important. One of the, the metaphors I really appreciate is, is the idea of the syllabus as a roadmap. And the reason I appreciate this metaphor is because I'm very directionally challenged. Like, <laughs> like one time on my way home where I was in Southern California and I was trying to get to Arizona, I only realized I was not going the right way when the freeway dead ended at the ocean. And then I was like, I bet I'm not headed home. So, you know, I'm like really directionally challenged. And so the, the nice thing about a roadmap is, is that roadmaps can be as detailed or as sort of blank as, as the, the map maker, right? And so some people need map or roadmaps that are like make a left at the second light and then that the street name is this, and it will be a house that's yellow, and that's what you do. And others are like, the moss grows on the left side of the tree. Find your way home, right? And that's all they need. <laughs> and so there's a flexibility with the, the roadmap. But what's nice about it is, is that a roadmap syllabus means that you are creating a document that is designed to explicitly tell students, you are starting at point A. By the end of the semester, I want you all to have made it to point Z. Let me show you how to get there. And it comes with a legend, right? All maps have legends. All maps tell you explicitly how to read them. So that's why I like that metaphor a lot. Yeah, and I think this is a really, really good metaphor for those of us who have classes where we're trying to incorporate some sort of element of choice. And so if you have a map, you don't have just like one street. You're not looking at a map of, say, San Antonio and only looking at 281. You're going to see how that one highway relates to 1604 and to I-10 and all of these things. And so if you're doing a, a course that has some sort of element of choice, whether that is in the assignment structure or group formations or whatever it is, the roadmap can be really helpful in terms of letting the students actually visualize what those choices are going to lead to for them over the course of the semester. Or um, it's easily you know applicable to, okay, you have this roadmap that I gave you, here's a blank one, that's gonna be your project plan. You fill out the way that you wanna get through the semester. So I think this is a really um, beneficial one if you have those types of classes and you're thinking about how best to sort of articulate to the students the way through the course. And a good roadmap not only points out the routes to successfully make it somewhere, it also points out obstacles, right? It'll be like, hey, there's construction, maybe you think twice. 
so that as you're telling students, here are the different paths that you have, you can say, hey, do you want to spend a little bit more time on this? Because here's a potential pitfall, right? Here's something you'll have to work through. So I, I think that's probably one of my favorite metaphors. But another metaphor that you can apply is to think of, of your syllabus as an invitation. It's an invitation to the class. It's an invitation to the learning community. It's an invitation to the subject. And the important thing to remember here is that, that means it has to be inviting, right? I have wording in my syllabus that says things like including but not limited to the following things, right? Like imagine if you got like a birthday party invitation that was like, we will be having fun in the following ways, including but not limited to X. I think you would be like, I think I'm skipping that party. Thank you so much. So an invitation needs to be, it needs to be friendly. Um, the, the wording needs to make people be excited. I um, mean, it needs to have enthusiasm. Because this is, this is at its core, a document that has to convey information too. So when we are thinking about all of that, you can think of like, what are the, what are the engaging ways of conveying some of the legalese or the boring parts of our syllabus? And so if you're thinking about just the, the boilerplate honor code that every syllabus at every institution has, what is a way of actually thinking about um, bringing your students into that conversation, whether that's questions we can think about before the first day. So what does the honor code mean to you? Um, what does integrity mean to you? How do you show integrity in other classes that are different from this? Those sorts of things. It can be questions like that, or it can be um, if you have, again, more open of a class, it can be an invitation to build this kind of thing with each other. So if you have, you know, the boilerplate, you might also have, but hey, we are a community in this class and we will also cover what we think our community standards should be. And so that's a way of, again, inviting the students into the conversation um, that doesn't necessarily have to do with being uh, you know, super fun or making it, you know, into into something that it's not, it's still conveying the information, but it's giving them sort of a, a way into the process. And the next one is something that has kind of taken off recently, I think, um, in terms of, I, I guess, where I've seen things kind of exploding in the gamification realm. But a syllabus can be like game instructions. And so, um, for people who don't play uh, a lot of board games or a lot of video games, this can come up in a couple of different ways. So you can have the paper syllabus that's like your board game instructions where it has the how to win, how to progress and those sorts of ideas kind of written out for you, um, who you are as a player in the class, who you are as as a part of, you know, whatever Dungeons and Dragons party you are. And I'm using more of the gamified language, but you can do this for, you know, your average non-gamified history 101 class too. So um, it's just asking like, what is your role in the class and how do you progress again, getting through point A to point B and what are the good things? What are the level ups that you're going to experience? What's the win stakes? Those sorts of things. So you can have it like that. Or if you're um, teaching online or you just want a more digital syllabus, which we'll talk about in a little bit, you can have something that is more of 
a an actual like playable game or a video or something that gives them some sort of tutorial level. So if you play video games, um, you might know that the end goal is to visit all of these different places and make sure all of the bad guys are defeated in each place, right? Um, but they're not just going to throw you in with Bowser. They're going to give you time to actually like learn the controls and learn what to do uh, when you come across resources and that sort of thing. So it can be something that's more digital in terms of something that's playable or something that is a video, but kind of gives them that same idea of a tutorial feel. Yeah, I think the two really lovely things about this metaphor is, as you said, it allows for, for you to think about sort of a multimodal approach. A lot of game instructions now say, don't want to read this or still have questions, watch this video tutorial, right? So that there's like a, a second component to it. But the thing that comes to mind when I think about game instruction is the explicitness, right? I've never read a game instructions that says, but you'll just kind of figure out what you should be doing and all the moves that you're making somewhere along the way, right? It may say like, you'll figure out how to, how to make better decisions as you go along. But no game instructions is like, just wing it, see what happens, right? They're like, here's the objective. Here's how you accomplish the objective. Here's who, who you are. Here's what you have to do with the various steps. And it's all about priming you for success, right? Because game instructions are trying to get you to succeed at the game. And so I think that's really helpful. Another way, and, and this is similar to, to some of these others, uh, particularly the sort of roadmap is, is you could do a blueprint. The difference with the blueprint is, is that usually an architect is not like, there are several different ways that we can build this building. Let's just see what happens, right? So that's the big difference between a roadmap. A blueprint is really precise, right? It's saying, this is what it's going to be from start to finish. But an architect would, right? It's going to start at the foundation. And so you're going to really methodically work your way through. And this may mean that you have sort of layers, right? Because there are different types of blueprints. There's the blueprints for the external part of, of a building. And then there's the blueprints for the internal parts. There are sketches. And so blueprints are very visual. So I think the blueprint metaphor is if you really appreciate for everything to be sort of a finely crafted construct and you want people to see all of the inner workings right and how everything fits together all the precise measurements all of that sort of stuff then that's the type of metaphor you're going to want to think through and the last one we have is a youtube walkthrough so for those of you who've never really watched um like top 10 countdowns or walkthroughs on youtube these are basically videos that sort of break down the step-by-step -step of a game or um, if you're even expanding this out to other um, forms of media, movies. And so if you have a YouTube walkthrough, so my favorite game to play on Nintendo Switch and any in any of the Nintendo handhelds is the Professor Layton series. It's a little cute cartoony mystery game. But the first game for me getting into it was so hard and I had to look up a walkthrough of like, okay, what exactly do I do to find whatever clue is next? And so it really gives you a step-by-step. -step. Now, obviously we don't want to kind of make it seem in our syllabus that, okay, as long as you do this, 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 and this, you automatically have an A. That's not what we're saying, but the concept of giving them a, hey, if you turn left here, or if you do this, this, and this, then you're on your way to being able to do this sort of setup in video format can be really helpful. Um, the other thing that you can think about with video walkthroughs is sometimes we'll have walkthroughs of movies. And so um, new rock stars 
Stars is a YouTube channel that does breakdowns of like every nerdy movie imaginable. And so like they'll go through and they'll go through how this really how this Batman movie relates to the comics, the Easter eggs that you'll find in it, how they did special effects. So if you're thinking about your class in terms of a cinematic experience um, and you're thinking about putting together your syllabus as a walkthrough, it's really a good time to be transparent with the student. That's what you can think about this as and, you know, show them some of the decisions that you made in terms of we're going to be reading this instead of this here because we want to get to this point, that sort of thing. And so um, this is something that it takes practice. So to be completely transparent, again, to keep with that theme, this isn't something that you're going to love right off the bat. You you won't um, putting this kind of video together and the feel, the aesthetic of a video syllabus feels foreign to us anyway. And so it might take you a class or two to really kind of find your groove in terms of how you want to talk about your class in this way. But once you do, it can be a really great way of not only laying out the semester for the students, but also, again, welcoming them into that course. The other thing I like about YouTube walkthroughs or, or any sort of walkthrough is that the ones I tend to watch are by experts, right? or by people who have a lot of experience. I, t I tend to watch walkthroughs for video games that are being played by people that are better than me, right? So that I can figure out how to be better at my craft. And so if you embrace that metaphor, you're, you're reminding students that like, you're here for them, right? You've been there, you've done that, both in terms of teaching the class before, but also in terms of having been a student. And you can kind of show them tricks and tips for success. So these are some just a few of the of the many metaphors that you may choose to employ when you're thinking about your syllabus. But but it is worthwhile going through some of the ones that you probably should start casting aside. And, and Lauren mentioned the first one, which is that you don't probably want your syllabus to feel like a cheat sheet to an A, right? You know, press triangle button three times, then circle, and you will get an A. And <laughs> And so the way to avoid that, right, is to think that through the language and how you've articulated things. And, and to see, is your syllabus focusing on the learning outcome, right? And here's how you succeed in the learning outcome. Or is your syllabus focusing on, here's how you get the grade? Because if it's focusing on, here's how you get the grade, it may feel like a cheat sheet, right? As opposed to sort of a more interactive guide. There are other things you probably don't want your um, syllabus to be in terms of how you're thinking about it metaphorically. The Ten Commandments, right? Vengeful and, and jealous God from above, decreeing <laughs> down to the minions, the sacred commandments of, of what you shall not do, right? Like you shall not do the following things. So if your entire syllabus was just all the things one shouldn't do, um, or if it didn't feel like it was a conversation, it felt like decrees, right? That's a hard document to engage with. That's a hard document to think about. And so this is this contrast sort of with that contract element. I've also seen a lot of people try to make their syllabus be everything, everything that the course needs. And so it serves almost as the textbook. And so it has not just how the course is going to operate, how the learning outcomes are going to be achieved, how the community is going to be built, but it also is like giving you all the information you need on the topic. And, and I think that that as a metaphor doesn't work quite either, right? This is, shouldn't be the document by which students understand everything in the class. This should be the document that, that serves as a guide to the class, right? What are some other metaphors that, that are probably best to avoid? 
Um, so a riddle, and and I know that some of you are probably saying, thanks, Captain Obvious, but we want to think about this not in terms of using this as a metaphor to like guide our construction, but the idea of this as a metaphor to really analyze what we've put together. And what I mean by that is sometimes we try to, you know, do a little bit too much of the invitation strategy and invite the students into conversation a little bit too much to the point where they feel like they're not getting enough information. If your syllabus is built as, you know, just a bunch of the enduring questions that we're going to grapple with over the course of the semester, but I don't know anything about like, how am I going to be assessed, then it can come across as like trying to figure out, okay, well, what the heck do I have to do in this class? Uh, not just to get an A, but just to survive. So, so when we're thinking about this particular metaphor, it's sort of a way of analyzing what we've built as a document and thinking about, okay, so if I'm a student in this class and I'm reading this document, do I actually have enough pieces of the puzzle to see the full picture? Or am I trying to get past the Sphinx here, basically? I think that's so important that we cannot lose sight no matter what metaphor we may apply to the fact that this has to be a practical document, right? It has to be a practical and useful document. And I know I've, I've been guilty of doing things where I'll be like, there are many ways in which this will happen in the semester, period, that end. And it's like, well, that that's a nice and very vague statement. So there's lots of ways that you can accidentally fall into the riddle conundrum. What are some other problematic metaphors? Uh, the dating app profile. Um, so for those of you who have never been on a dating app, um, you've got your few major sections that every single one of them has, which is the biography, the pictures, and the facts and tidbits, I'll call it. And so dating apps, dating app, that might look different. So some of them will say like, oh, put on your star sign and put like what you're looking for if you'll date people with kids or no and that sort of thing. Um, some of them will be like, here are some fun questions to get the conversation started. But you want to avoid it feeling like your student is coming to approaching your class as a potential suitor and trying to figure out if they like like you or not, basically. Um, or you as a professor. So sometimes we want to give facts about us and it turns into, you know, um, uh, what was that game show? Mystery Date um, yes. session. And so when we're putting together this document, you know, it's good to humanize it. It's good to share, you know, maybe pictures of something you're going to be talking about. If you've got like a geology class, one of the types of rocks that you're going to be talking about, or um, share a picture of you putting in, you know, fun facts or something like that. But you want to make sure that you are, again, keeping it functional and not just a, okay, this is sort of a, a generic profile of what the class is kind of going to look like or who the professor is. The reason it's really helpful to think about metaphors when it comes to your syllabus is that the syllabus is, again, it's such an important document. It's such a, a significant way for helping your students to navigate the course for you art to articulate what the learning outcomes are and how they're being achieved, that that it can help to, to make it into a framework that's already really recognizable, right? The roadmap, the YouTube walkthrough. And that metaphor can also help you make some really important decisions in terms of document design considerations. So where do you put things, right? 
Um, for a very, very long time, I have just always had my text first and then my calendar at the end. But I've begun to see several people putting their calendar up at the front because they know that students are probably going there first to see like, but what am I actually expected to do? We'll get back to this late work policy later. What's my homework? And then and then they go into the policies, right? So that is one decision. Another decision would be little things like, do you begin by your statement of inclusivity or do you begin with your academic dishonesty policy? Right? It may not feel like it makes much difference. And to some degree, some of these elements can be shifted around quite a bit. But depending on which metaphor you see being most applicable to your syllabus will shape things like where things go, what types of things you include, what are other document design considerations that get affected by what metaphor you sort of employ to thinking about the syllabus? I think one big one that people have started to think about is, do we want to go visual or not? And so the the kind of knee-jerk reaction when we say visual is a lot of people think of infographics. And some um, instructors do put their syllabus together as an infographic and there's some really really cool ones out there so you can kind of decide if that's something that you want to explore they can be you know just as effective sometimes more effective than the traditional syllabus but I think that even more than that when we talk about the visual depiction of information is thinking about what parts of your syllabus could be influenced or enhanced with the use of visuals. So for some people that might be, you know, having charts and visual de depictions of data. So um, if you have, you know, a lot of assignments for whatever reason, or like your students are going to be doing 15 journal entries, plus some quizzes, plus some tests, plus a project or two or something like that, then maybe instead of just listing everything in bullets, we have some sort of graph or, or graphic that shows how much of the class is going to be taken up by these journal assignments versus the major project versus the quizzes and those sorts of things. And we can also think about pictures. So a lot of times um, when we bring up pictures, we think of our colleagues who put like memes or pictures of the stuff they're studying maybe in the syllabus. And those are good things to think about too. But I think sometimes having a picture of even just what you mean by the materials that the students will need is a good idea. So like for mine and in almost every uh, class I teach, we use podcasts now. So if the, even if the students aren't making them, they're listening to them. And so a lot of times it's easy to think, well, if I just say have a podcast app, they'll find the one that they like. But a lot of times, you know, Students aren't on social media or or these apps in the frequency or intensity that we think they are. Um, and so having that example of, okay, here's the here's just the logo for the three main podcasting apps that you'll be able to find all of these podcasts on gives them a little bit more information to then make decisions with. And that can be really good. And then lastly, just thinking about the, and we'll talk a little bit more about accessibility, but just thinking about how you're using visuals and whether or not they are detracting or adding to your syllabus. Um, and this goes for assignment sheets too. So things like color and how accessible those are, but we can go into that a little bit more as we talk about accessibility. Yeah. 
the the other things I want to add about the visual, one of the most lovely visuals I've seen added to a syllabus was a, a graphic that illustrated to students not only what they were doing in class versus outside of class in terms of topics, but because it, it was a course that in, involved space retrieval practices, right? So they learned topic A, then they started on topic B, and then they have the test on topic A, right? She um, used a color-coded system so students could easily see. We're going to start with the pink, then we're going to move to green, and then you're going to be tested on the pink. Then we're going back to the green, right? And, and I think that visualization really clarified the, the larger structure for the class. But the nice thing about the visual elements is that you don't have to have it be your entire syllabus. I tried doing the infographic once, and I was like on scroll down number 17, and I was like, no. No, this is this is not working for me. But there are some really fantastic uh, visuals that could just be the highlights, right? A, a one-page document that is visually engaging and, and puts information into a visual format that is just the big thing you need to know or, you know, something like that. So it, it's important to remember that the visual doesn't have to be an all or nothing. It can be a the most important parts. So let us talk about accessibility because... It is so important. Your syllabus needs to be thinking about issues of accessibility. And it needs to be thinking about issues of accessibility, both in terms of for your course, but also in terms of the document itself. Yeah, so when we think about accessibility in terms of just the content, that starts with thinking through sort of your policies um, and demands and how they impact students. And so I know this is a, another moment where some people probably say, thanks, Captain Obvious, but it's, it's incredible. Some of the things that you might not even think would pose an issue until you have a student come to you and say, Hey, um, so about that. <laughs> so when we're thinking about policies and that sort of thing, um, thinking about what we say about just in class participation is one of the things. So if you have a course that is a discussion-based course and your syllabus says, this is a discussion-based course, so everyone will be expected to participate. Okay, great. And that might seem to us, especially as instructors who have been doing this as a long time of just, you know, kind of a standard way of saying, hey, we want you we want to hear everybody's voices in class. But what that comes across as to a student who, for example, has PTSD and has a hard time with flashbacks or dissociating is my grade is going to suffer if I ever dissociate in class and am not talking. And so it's an assumption that the students are making, but we in turn are also fueling that assumption, right? We are, we are assuming a sort of default with our students that makes that assumption possible. And so one of the ways, one of the easiest ways of working with that is think about all of the different things participation means in your class, because I'm guessing it doesn't just mean that everyone's talking all of the time because everyone can't be talking all of the time. So what does participation mean in your class? And then spell that out. So for mine, I tell them, hey, I know that sometimes we move on really fast and you might not get a chance to say what you wanted to say or you're still kind of thinking and mulling things over. So participation isn't just always having your hand up and always being the first to answer a question. 
Participation can be note-taking. You know, you get credit for the notes that you add to our course glossary. Um, participation can be resource gathering. So if something sparks an idea in your head and you know of a perfect example of something that I'm talking about and you want to go find it and again, post it to our course glossary, great, fantastic. That counts too. And we talk about, you know, the things beyond that in class, but I give a few different examples that let students know that they don't have to be the most chatty person in the room to be able to get a good participation grade in my course. So that's part of it. Um, you And we have, you know, this could be a, an episode all on its own about thinking about our course policies and how sometimes they are really inaccessible and not inclusive, but thinking about things like your technology policy, does it assume that everyone has a laptop? Does it penalize the students who need to use a laptop or assistive technology? Um, those sorts of things. And so the one that I hear a lot is cell phones. I understand the people who don't want cell phones in their classroom, but I came from a school that had tons of international students and they would have their cell phones out translating certain things during class. And so to me, cell phones will have always been just kind of an assistive technology. And so I try to account for that in the syllabus by explaining the things that we can be doing with the various parts of technology. Maybe that works for your class, maybe it doesn't, but going through the content of your syllabus and sort of thinking really critically about what assumptions you're making and what your default student that you're picturing is and who might be excluded or who this might pose a challenge to. Because when we talk about accessibility, that's really what we're talking about when we get down to it is there is a default student that we assume and anyone who might need accommodations beyond that is sort of the outlier and we don't want to other our students. There are several ways that you can can create really accessible and, and inclusive policies without necessarily sacrificing some things that, that matter to you, right? Um, I, I think a lot of times people feel like it's an all or nothing. Like, Either they have to always do X or they can never do X, but it could be you can have your phones out when we're having discussions or lectures, but you need to put them away when it's quiz time, right? Or there's going to be a 15-minute period in every class that is going to be a tech-free moment or is going to be a participate but not verbally right experience. And so I think it's about figuring out why do you have your policy? Like what, what, is, what is at the heart of that policy? And how can you articulate to your students where and how you're going to be flexible to make sure that you're creating an environment that accounts for the realities of who they are as students, not just who you envision having as students. And this is one of those places where I don't always have all of my extenuating policies in explicit form. Sometimes I will say, we will discuss this further and what this means, right? Like, especially when it comes to participation, because otherwise it could become, I mean, that could become a, a treaty unto itself. But what's yeah. important is, though, you can't make it feel like you're going to put the policy in place that is for the uh, neurotypical student and then say, and anyone else, don't worry, we'll work it out. Right. Because I've seen a lot of that where it'll be like, this is what's happening, but I'll make exceptions for the rest of you that can't be perfect. Right. Instead, yeah. it needs to be like, <laughs> We're going to adopt this policy for everyone. It may not apply to you, but it may, right? And so it's, it's about making sure that, that when you are making accommodations, it doesn't feel like you're making someone feel lesser than the person who doesn't need the accommodation. 
And can I add on to that? Because something that you said really, really is an important fact, which is just like you don't have everything spelled out, like explicitly, like we will not always know everything that every single student needs. And I think this is really where instructors feel feel this pressure of like, there is so much, like how do I even start? It's not about being perfect. It's not about being this perfectly inclusive classroom. When we talk about anything in terms of DEI initiatives or JEDI, I know that some some places call it JEDI, like we're talking about, we're not talking about a state of being that you get to and then you, you're you you're just the woke professor and your class is perfectly inclusive. We're talking about a practice of reflection and revision. And this is something where you as a teacher, especially, you know, even if you are just now getting into ideas of DEI, ideas of accessibility, ideas of universal design for learning, you still have a wealth of experience that you can fall back on. So maybe you don't know that everybody, everybody's specific accommodation that they need and how to like perfectly craft your entire class around that. But you know that you probably at some point will have one or two dyslexic students in your class. So hey, pick a dyslexic friendly font. And then that way they don't have to jump through the extra hoop of asking, hey, can I have the slides so I can put them in a dyslexic friendly font, which goes a little bit into what we're talking about next, which is accessibility in terms of form. So fonts that, you know, students can read are important. And this is one of those things that goes perfectly into the discussion of universal design for learning, which is that It's not just dyslexic students or students with visual impairments that are going to benefit from a dyslexic friendly font. It's good on everybody's eyes. And so we know that those students are in our classrooms. So it's easy for you to just be like, oh, I see that this particular font is really good. Um, I'm going to use it in my syllabus and my PowerPoints, or I'll have an accessible version of my syllabus that has this if you have a different font for whatever reason. And so doing things like that are those little things that make it so that it's not just an endless kind of mountain of, I have to ask for this accommodation and this accommodation just to get through the class. I I wanna stress again, what you said about universal design for learning. So the the example I always think about is the the ramp on sidewalks, right? Mm -hmm. On, On the surface, that seems like it was built just for people that are in wheelchairs so that they can make it onto the sidewalk. But it's also for anyone who has a stroller or people who are riding a bike and don't want to hop the curb or people who are just not feeling like taking that little step or people who are wheeling things or any number of things, right? The, the, the sky is kind of the limit. And so that's, that's the key of, of universal design for learning is, is that you're making something that no matter the situation will work for everyone because it's keeping in mind those who who need us to think about them a little bit more in terms of accessibility and accommodations. So think about your color, think about your language, think about your font. I want to end, because this has been a longer episode for us, I want to end with looking at and thinking about whether or not it is time to do the the thing that I promised myself I will do every semester until I realize I don't have time to do. And that is, should you digitize your syllabus. And it's really important to, to explain that we are not meaning should you have a PDF version that you put onto your learning management system? Because the answer to that is yes, right? At this point in 2022, even if you still hand out physical copies um, of your syllabus, 
you should also be having a digital copy for your students. That, that is the like, we're not even making that an issue of debate. What do we mean by making a digital syllabus? We mean putting together a syllabus in a way that students actually interact with it physically beyond holding and reading. So let's just say you have a syllabus that has course policies, schedule, and list of assignments, right? So we've all been there. We've all been students. We go, okay, how do I get an A? <laughs> and then put that thing down, which is why all of us at some point has have said to a student, did you check the syllabus? Um, and so when we think about digitizing the syllabus, we're trying to get them to actually manipulate the syllabus or work with the information that's in there. And some of us do this by giving a quick assignment afterwards. So for me, in some of my classes, I do a project planner where they got to do their own roadmap through the semester. Some of us do syllabus quizzes. But one of the good things about doing a digital syllabus and you can use like interactive syllabus templates that are work for Qualtrics and Google Forms. Uh, you can build yours from scratch. You can make it out of something as simple as a PowerPoint. It lets us ditch the syllabus quiz. So mine is in Qualtrics. And as they go through it, they have to write me a little bit in terms of an answer. So, hey, this is the honor code. How do you intend to uphold it for the class? Um, when they get to the list of materials that they need for the course, they get to drag and drop what they already have into the I've already got this box and they get to drag what they don't have into nope don't have it yet box if they have anything in that box then the um then the survey form brings up another question that says hey how do you plan to get this before week three when you need it so it allows us to have a moment where they are interacting with the information without having to have another extra assignment after that in a lot of ways this gets them to slow down stop and think about the things that they're going through rather than just kind of skimming most of it, looking at maybe the grading scheme and the late policy and then putting it down until they need it again. So the keys is to really replace that word digital with perhaps interactive and and maybe multimodal, right? And, and for those of you that are like Qualtrics, no thank you, not today. Um, you know, there, there are less tech intensive ways to still have something be interactive, to still have something be, again, a document that students are not just looking at and putting down, clicking the file open and closing it, but actually manipulating it, right? And manipulating it for results. So when you have a, a syllabus that is interactive, when you have a syllabus that is multimodal, so it might have sound elements as well as visual elements, as well as video elements, um, you can ditch the syllabus quiz Again, you have much more interactivity. You can also begin to let go of the Easter eggs. Lauren, explain what I mean. So a lot of us uh, in, in years of years of your um, decided that the way that we are going to get students to read through the whole syllabus was to put something cute in the footnotes or to put little like scavenger hunt type things in the syllabus. So, hey, first person to find me a meme um, that that relates to English class gets, you know, gets to pick their research topic first or whatever. And I think those are fun. <laughs> so when we say letting go of it, we don't mean like entirely. You can you can still have those things because I think they're fun. But Letting go of the idea that that's what's going to be the thing that makes your student read through the entire syllabus and internalize every single piece of it. And the reason is that 
A, that doesn't guarantee anything. And we, I think we know that by now. But also, if your students know that you do that, they will look for the Easter eggs and then do just the Easter eggs. Um, and if they don't do the Easter eggs, that is not, that does not mean that they are not reading the syllabus. And here I will reference the $50 challenge that someone did last semester. If you're listening to this in the far flung future in, um, it was in fall of 2021, where he hid the combination to a random locker on campus in his syllabus, literally smack in the middle of a sentence and said, first one to get it gets to keep it. And that was all the detail that were, that there was. It was like the numbers of the combination and the number of the locker spelled out and just that there was something in it. It didn't have anything else, right? So he was testing whether or not the students read through the sort of boilerplate pieces that we have. Uh, so the attendance policy, the honor code, um, those sorts of things. Uh, and his conclusion was that since no one took that $50 at any point during the semester, his students weren't reading through the syllabus. And granted, there were probably other in indications that they hadn't read through the syllabus. But this caused a bit of a stir online, as I'm sure many of you saw, because uh, the students, as Gen Z is wont to do, were like, oh, no, we won't we won't take this and started posting screenshots. And it was very clear that his document design was terrible and that the little Easter egg did not give enough information for the students to actually know what the heck they were looking for, what to do, whether or not they could really take the $50 that was in it. I know that I am an anxious person. And even if I had gone to look, I would have been like, oh no, I'm not touching that. This is a trap, right? <laughs> this isn't what was really supposed to be in there. But those are the things that I'm talking about when I say we got to let go of the Easter eggs. We have to let go of this idea that because we put little fun things in our syllabus, that that is an indication or not an indication of them actually internalizing the material, interacting with the material. If we want them to interact with the material, we have to give them something to interact with. And I think that particular situation, right? That's not really even an Easter egg. That's like a chocolate covered broccoli, right? It's like, it's like <laughs> yes. eat it and it's going to be gross, maybe extra gross, but find it in there. Easter eggs are like, for the nerds, right? You're like, I am so nerdy and excited about this that I have spent hours analyzing this one frame in the corner of this Pixar film and I have now pieced together the universe, right? Like that's what an Easter egg is. And, and that again, you can't do unless you've built that engagement that can only happen with interactivity. I think the other thing that's nice about going interactive and going multimodal and, and having a more digital form is that, as we all know, post spring of 2020, we are going to have to adapt. We are going to have to adapt more than perhaps we anticipated. And so that contract metaphor doesn't really work, right? Like if the person that I'm renting a house from comes to me and is like, by the way, you now owe me $12,000 a month. Um, I'm going to be like, no, no, the contract says otherwise. But if a roadmap tells me, hey, there's now an obstacle or there's now a shorter, shorter way to get there, I'm going to be like, thank you so much, MapQuest. I'm very appreciative of this. And so the, the other thing to keep in mind is that there is no need for your syllabus to be this, again, to go to that Ten Commandments metaphor, this like literally written in stone document. Make it a living, breathing thing that evolves and grows as your class does, as you begin to understand how you can be creating a more accessible and accommodating space for your specific students that semester, right, whatever it might be. And so, so those are the reasons that it's really advantageous to begin moving away from 
just the simple, it was a Word doc and now it's a PDF. Therefore, it's quote digital route. And I think that going along with that, the idea of a living, breathing document, that's good for those of us who aren't ready to jump into Qualtrics or putting together like a whole big thing in Kahoot or Google Forms or whatever the case may be. Because if you think about it less as like a game they're playing, which you can do that too. I've built my syllabus in Twine for a few years now. Like you can think of it just as, oh, okay, I'm going to make this into a Google Doc and give everybody editing privileges. And yeah, you have the one that is uneditable, so you know how it started. But even on Google Docs, you can see the version history, so you can see who made changes to what. But you can have them leave comments. You can say, hey, here is our, here are our course policies. Here are the top two that are important to me. Everybody add one. Everybody add one thing that you think is important, and then we're gonna talk about them and work with them and figure out what's good for our class. And so that is a good way of having this level of interactivity, that level of engagement that doesn't require a whole lot of work on your part as an instructor. And it doesn't require you to have, you know, this level of sort of technical knowledge beyond just writing something down in Word. This may feel like we've been talking for quite some time, but this is really just kind of the tip of the iceberg when it comes to the syllabus, because there's so many things you can consider and you're going to spend the rest of your teaching life adapting, adopting, and refining this document. But it's really important to, to, again, start with that metaphor, figure out what the syllabus means to you and what function it serves in the course, and then build everything else accordingly. Lauren, what are we going to talk about next? For next time, I want us to all think about the course that we teach the most, or maybe your current favorite course that you're teaching. Just think of a course that you teach. And I want you to imagine that HGTV gives you a little phone call and says, you are now invited to our special teacher's edition of Extreme Course Makeover. Just imagine someone yelling, move that bus, or in our case, projector. We're going to talk about giving our courses our desired makeovers to turn them into our dream courses. Oh, I'm so excited. I can't wait. Thank you so much for listening to this episode, and we look forward to you joining us again next time.